What happens after an actor becomes so acclaimed, so synonymous with certain types of roles? What happens if America's sweetheart wants to do an erotic thriller? In this season so far, we've discussed early examples of industry-wide typecasting and how casting directors arrived on the scene to challenge directors with fresh faces and casting to the soul of a character. But what happens when the best actor for the job doesn't have the right image for the job? Actors enter the profession for the variety that it presents. So to use an actor in the same way over and over again to play the same kind of role, which is a version of typecasting, is ultimately to the detriment of the final product. In this episode, a look at contemporary typecasting and the potential audience backlash to an actor taking on a new kind of role. Let's dive into Jane Campion's 2003 erotic thriller, In the Cut, starring 90s rom-com queen Meg Ryan. After a run of nuanced and moving performances in still iconic romantic comedies from the late 80s to the early 2000s, it was easy to think of Meg Ryan as typecast. It's a story akin to those we've covered earlier. Think back to the labeling of actresses as ingenues, comediennes, or leading ladies, with very little wiggle room. But as casting director and former Academy president David Rubin says, When someone has banked on the tropes of a particular kind of character and just brings those tropes to each successive performance, there's no inspiration. There's no immediacy to it. So Meg Ryan taking similar on-the-surface roles in films like Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, and When Harry Met Sally isn't being typecast. Each performance is clearly drawn, nuanced, and masterfully executed. I am having all of these fantasies about some man I have never even met who lives in Seattle. It rains nine months of the year in Seattle. I know, I know. I turn on my computer... I go online, Welcome. Welcome. and my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. But the massive success of those films clearly influenced how audiences and critics perceived her. and the role of Franny, an English professor who has a steamy affair with an NYPD officer investigating a series of gruesome murders, simply didn't align with Ryan's established image. I'm wondering if maybe you saw something at that bar. Maybe something you don't know you saw. It was dark, and there was a man, a girl with long blue fingernails. I don't think it's a good idea that we see each other anymore. Well, another girl's been murdered. This guy likes blood. Did you kill her? After In the Cut was released, the response was critical and much of it condescending. British talk show host Michael Parkinson infamously scolded Meg Ryan, how could you be naked? Recent critical reevaluation praises the film's subversion of a noir femme fatale archetype but those subversions of type and image weren't well-received in 2003. 
taking roles against type has often been seen as potentially dangerous to a career. In 1940, Ronald Coleman turned down the role of Maxim de Winter in Rebecca because he didn't want to play a murderer. But sticking to one specific type limits possibilities for both actors and directors. The biggest misperception about casting directors is that we are eager to say no. The opposite is true. We are very eager to say yes. We are exploring possibilities of many ways of playing a particular character. And we're, we're looking for the answer. We are looking for someone to walk into a room and introduce us to the answer, to embody the answer. After the break, we talk with In The Cut producer Lori Parker about the production and reception of the film. When we met Meg, I just feel like we both thought it's almost like an unknown. It's almost like someone that, that we've never seen before. And I think that was really exhilarating and kind of exciting. We're back with producer Lori Parker. Lori produced My Private Idaho and Mars Attacks in addition to In the Cut. While Lori wasn't the casting director on In the Cut, she was there from the film's inception and played a role in the casting process. My name is Lori Parker, and I was the producer of In the Cut. I was also the music supervisor and the second unit director, and I'm also a screenwriter right now. So I would love to ask you some questions about your own career and your path. And um, maybe we could start by you talking about where your interest in film began. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to be a director. I wanted to work with women and people of color. I wanted to work with people whose films, you know, were not getting made or were super hard to make. So I developed a bunch of projects with um with women and filmmakers of color. And it was extremely difficult. All those films were really good, but they didn't get greenlit. By this time I had two little kids and I was a single mother. And I took a job at Warner Brothers. I worked for Tim Burton's company as his president of production. And we, you know, had a really fun run, really interesting run of studio filmmaking, but that was also incredibly, it was really seductive, but really demoralizing at the same time. So I decided to leave and I moved up north and I started writing and that's what I've been doing pretty much. I mean, I did make In the Cut, Jane sort of wooed me out. Maybe you could shed some light on what the relationship is typically between producers and casting directors, because we've been exploring the relationship between casting directors and actors, casting directors and directors, but how does a producer, or how do producers and casting directors interact with each other? I really believe in, you know, ensemble casting and creative casting. And I think as an independent, it's really the only way that you can make a film. Casting director becomes like your most important ally as a producer because 
really how you're going to get your film financed is when you're able to show that you have people who are not famous, who want to be in your film and who you can actually afford to have in your film and are going to be amazing. And so that idea of kind of like being able to demonstrate, first identify and then demonstrate that you have that capacity to, you know, make something amazing, that it, you really, that's the biggest tool I ever had for financiers was being able to show them who was going to be in the film and what it was going to be like through, through that. I would love to just start off by talking about the casting process in particular for In the Cut. Could you tell us about, you know, what that process looked like from your point of view? In the Cut was a film that Jane Campion optioned the rights to the novel by Susanna Moore with Nicole Kidman. And that was with Nicole Kidman in mind to play the lead, Franny Avery. And so casting wasn't really a part of the big picture for me until we were probably a couple years in. We were developing this script, talking about how we would film it. A lot of the creative approaches to the film were worked out with the idea that Nicole would be playing Franny. And so when it came time to really move into the next stage from development to production or pre-production, Nicole wasn't available. And she wasn't available not just for a short period of time, but kind of for a really long period of time. It was sort of the um, the real ramping up of her becoming a movie star. So she was saying yes to a lot of things. Jane and Nicole came to the agreement that she would step down as the lead because really Jane wanted to make the film now, as it were, as opposed to waiting. And so then we were looking for a new Franny. So Jane came to L.A. and we started meeting people. Franny, the main character of In the Cut, is navigating a world filled with sexism that seems to prove over and over again that women are never really safe. Her ex stalks her, her student seems to threaten her, her new lover might be a killer, and her sister is tragically murdered. To make it through all of that, Franny has to keep finding the will to fight. Where Meg was in her life and her career at that point, it really felt sort of simpatico to the emotional environment of the film. Lori and director Jane Campion were working with their casting director, Mark Bennett, remotely. They were in frequent contact. Yeah, I mean, we we were on the phone with Mark a lot. He is really one of my favorite casting people I've ever worked with because he sort of approaches casting like a filmmaker. He seemed to know like how different casting choices would resonate in the hands of different directors. And so we met Meg, and I feel like when we met Meg, I just feel like we both thought, oh, this is like we've never seen this. It's almost like an unknown. It's almost like someone that that we've never seen before because she was so unlike 
her romantic comedy roles. And I think that was really exhilarating and kind of exciting. And I feel like there was maybe some kind of kinship between Jane and Meg about just how fickle the world is and they boost you up at one second and then they drop you down at the next. And so I think they really liked each other. And then Meg just kept saying, let me read. I want to read something for you. And Jane, you know, was saying, you don't have to read. But Meg ended up doing some parts and they were, she was, she was just effortlessly good in the role. Your assignment for today is to utilize Nothing, nothing happens in that To book. the lighthouse. Yeah, one old lady dies. How many ladies have to die to make it good? At least three. My conversation with producer Lori Parker continues after the break. Here's more of my conversation with film producer Lori Parker about the film In the Cut and the idea of casting against type. You know, it's so interesting the way that you're talking about the the kinds of things that they were talking about and the sensibility and the and the shared concerns that they have as as artists, as women, that they were picking up on, it sounds like over and above what the role would require. Meg had just been through this horrible situation with Russell Crowe and like had been dragged in the tabloids and everything. In 2000, tabloids were flooded with rumors of an affair between Meg Ryan and Russell Crowe. It even became part of Meg's narrative while doing press for In the Cut. A profile on Ryan in The Guardian, tied to the film's release, consistently refers to the scandal. And I think, you know, I think Jane knew something about what that was like, not not so much from a personal point of view, but having, you know, had a film that um, the critics didn't like. And so I do think that they connected around that. But I think Meg's sensibility and just her her quality as a human being was very different than we would have thought based on her public persona. Really, casting is probably, you know, more than any other film that I've ever worked on, the defining factor of the film. You know, like, in the cut, the casting, if you think about it in terms of who could have played that role, it it's just so unbelievably huge how that the impact that the casting had the sort of main point of the film is what's happening in this woman's head about whether or not she's complicitly sleeping with a murderer and most of that really got lost in the release of the film because um I think the way that it was marketed, um, just the way that having Meg Ryan in the film made Sony Screen Gems feel like it needed to be on a thousand screens, not wanting to send it to Cannes. I mean, I, I just practically, I threw an absolute tizzy fit about it not going to Cannes. 
And, but I was overruled. I think that was a big mistake just because, you know, it, it never got that sort of European treatment of understanding the way that someone like Jane might take a film and um, subvert the, you know, kind of like the, like the basic rules of the genre and do something different. And we didn't really, we didn't have the Cannes press conference where that kind of thing would be brought out. And so I think um, it was sort of more perceived as like a 1980s slick thriller, you know, done by a woman director with, you know, Meg, Meg Ryan nude. I'm just curious if you've thought that Meg Ryan's casting in the in the film had something to do with the way that it wasn't taken as seriously or as, you know, as closely for what it really was trying to accomplish? You know, I don't think that there was any critic who didn't think Meg was really good in the film. I think it wasn't like, you know, a face plant in terms of, you know, the casting had resulted in you know, a subpar performance. If anything, the, it was almost like people didn't quite know how to talk about Meg's performance without comparing it to, you know, you've got male or Harry, when Harry met Sally, because every question was really about her image versus the character and the performance, which was really unfair and really unfun for her. And, she wasn't enjoying the press as an actor. And there's just a really lot of focus on the nudity. I feel like two things. I Mostly the critics were almost entirely male and many of them really, really hated the film. Like it made them really, really angry. I think that it's, had it gone to Cannes and had it had, you know, a different kind of initial response, then the American critics probably would have had an easier time understanding what the film was rather than what it appeared to be. Right, right. I'm wondering if the question of an actor's image or the perception of what they can do based on what they've already done or what they have come to be known for How have you seen that question of image play out elsewhere in Hollywood? Absolutely. At that time, looking at something like, I mean, this was much earlier, but seeing something like the resurrection of an actor who, you know, has gone completely cold, like someone like John Travolta being resurrected in Pulp Fiction. But it was funny and it was cool. So he... There was no one saying, well, you used to be seen this way. They were just thrilled to see him in his new incarnation. I think more more closer to that is maybe like Brendan Fraser in The Whale because he was known in one way. And then, you know, The Whale was a very serious enterprise. I mean, they really, you know, it was a drama. And so I think some of... There's some parallels to me in in the way that he's perceived 
now compared to the way he was perceived before. But Meg, you know, because Meg was so known as cute and adorable and comedic, it just was like the combination of Jane's treatment of the material and then Meg's image being so different. It just, people just didn't know how to cope with it. Well, the film has undergone a critical reevaluation in the past few years. And I wonder what your reflections are now in terms of the film's place in film history. I feel like back in that time, women were really, really pigeonholed into a certain kind of film. And, you know, the only women, like we would try to get films off the ground with female directors. And we would be told, you know, oh yeah, we don't, you know, we've got our women's film for this year. Or if we suggested a woman for a certain film, they'd say, oh, we don't see a woman for this. I think what happened with Jane, I mean, she was really lucky to come from a country where they had affirmative action and the funding for films comes from the government. So they were required to fund the women in equal percentages with the men. And that was also in the UK and in France, which is why some of the best, earliest filmmakers, women, were from those places, you know. But in the US, that wasn't the case. And so I think now people looking at In the Cut might see it differently. I think it's a really different time. And I I hope that the film would get a kind of second look. And I know it has over the years. Different people have written about it in rethinking what the film was like. But it is hard. You know, once something really gets critically panned, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to bring it back. In your experience, what do you see as sort of the keys for successful casting? When you think about the casting where it's just like, you just can't believe how how brilliant the casting is. I think that those are usually a combination of probably a casting director who saw or or understood an actor's range in ways that nobody else had, a director who was open-minded, and then an actor who had the temerity or the, the gall to think of themselves, you know, in a more interesting way. What really changes to me is who can be a lead, who can write the stories, who can tell the stories, whose stories can be about That's what's really changed since I first started producing. Thanks to Lori Parker for being on the show. Join us next week when we talk about the casting of Boys Don't Cry. That's it for this episode of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to see the performance gallery yourself 
and learn more about the essential work that casting directors do. The Academy Museum Podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Krokmal is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Victoria Alejandro. Our other producer is Monica Bushman. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery and to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of LAS Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. 